There's something so incredibly special about the opportunity that you and I have this morning to come in here today with the full assurance that our Savior is no longer in the grave, that he is alive, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and no one will ever remove him from that place. Not Satan, not us, not anything can ever remove him from the, from the place that he now sits in authority to be able to love us. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be. We're going to jump into an account of two men who were, uh, who were traveling just after, uh, just on this Sunday morning, as you just uh, saw a video of just this first day of the week and all of these things that were now transpiring. As you're there in your Bible in Luke 24, just take notice of something where Luke says, but on the first day of the week, now what a special day, I'll tell you what, that is the transitional element from Old Testament to New Testament. Don't miss it. You know, they used to have their Sabbath on Saturday, and then the New Testament church began to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, where Jesus Christ had rose from the dead, and now it was the staple mark, even in the day that they worshiped, to be able to come, and it was a constant reminder that on that first day of the week, which had now changed, he was no longer dead. The Messiah, who they had long awaited for, was alive. It was a textual reminder by Luke to help us remember the resurrection, even in the way that they decided on which day uh, that they would worship. And as we understand the account, and we're going to jump in on verse 13, uh, as we get to the two men on the road to Emmaus, but I do want to remind us of something. Probably undoubtedly one of the most challenging moments and difficult circumstances that that any individual here will endure in this lifetime will be the loss of people who have had significant influence in their life. Perhaps that you have uh, had that circumstance happen in your life. I know for me, I, I can remember back, there was just one gentleman and no one, good majority of people on this earth may never even know this man's name. But there he was at a moment in my life, Dr. Tom Zempel. All of a sudden, when, when, when I didn't understand certain things, he took me aside. All of a sudden, when my marriage was in, in, in disaster, he came and he spoke words of life and truth into my life so that I could be a better husband. All of a sudden, he would sit down beside me, beside me at, as I would arrive early at seminary, and we had these two chairs, and I was always having to be there because I had to drive early, and he could have easily just walked by after getting his cup of coffee, but that man, almost every single time, he stopped, and he influenced and impacted me in a way that God used for the rest of my life. Have you had people like that in your life, people that all of a sudden God has called to pass away before you? who have significantly shaped your life, how hard it is to put words together about the impact and long-lasting impact that they have had on your life. I bet you can all probably remember. Now try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. If there could have been one individual that you would have thought to yourself, no, don't go. Please don't go. It was Jesus Christ. Here they were, after the crucifixion, and, and by the way, every time we talk about the crucifixion, understand, as, as we went through on Good Friday, and I was so thankful for Pastor Ben giving us this re- reflection time to understand the cruelty, but understand the pain that the son endured as the father 
was going to put the, allow the sins of the entire world. Now let's just make it even more personable. He took your sin. And oh my goodness, he took so much of my sin. And he just put it on himself and he said, I will die. Why would he do that? Because he knew that the Father had a plan that was so remarkable that would not end in death, but would end in life. And that's what you and I get to experience. When someone talks about the crucifixion, understand this, that the, the crucifixion was intended by the Roman individuals to make sure that whoever went up on the cross didn't come down until they were dead. You'll read in Roman history books and you will never find a time where someone came off a Roman cross and they were half alive. Never happened. That was a marker so that everyone in the world and all the, all the biblical writers could simply endorse the reality this man was certifiably dead. Which means something miraculous had to happen in order for this man to breathe again. On that first day, you could only imagine as they retreated, most likely to the upper room in Jerusalem. They gathered, having Jesus now been buried in the tomb. They waited. It's now the first day of the week. They had heard, according to Luke chapter 4, and also in John and in, and in Matthew, they record this as well. There was two ladies who went to the tomb, and all of a sudden, they entered in, and all of a sudden, they realized the tomb was empty. Now, right at face value, you might want to think, you might think, they're, they're thinking to themselves, no, where is he? Because he's alive. That's exactly what he told us. But is that really what was going on in their mind? There were so many possibilities of what was happening that they were thinking, who took the body of my precious Savior? Then they go back after this whole angelic uh, communication, and I love the words that Luke draws us to. When the angels ask them, ask, uh, ask them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Wow, what a sight to see. I don't think that they expected to see angelic individuals on that, on that first day of the week. They were hoping for something. They ran back, they went to the rest of, of, of the individuals who were gathered, like, uh, most likely the disciples, because Peter and, and, and perhaps John, I think it may have been, that had set out for the tomb. And they just went on a run. I mean, he, I mean all of a sudden, Peter was just hightailing it to the tomb to say, you know what, I've got to see this for myself. Because I'll tell you what, both, most likely because there was a certify, certifiably dead individual that went into the tomb, now they wanted to see, was there a certifiably alive person that came out of the tomb? He wanted to see for his own eyes. He wanted, he wanted to say, wow, this is it. This is all of what he had said. And he got there, and they didn't find him in the tomb. They were still so perplexed. By the time you get to these entire words, now you can imagine the buzz that's going on in somewhat of this upper room and larger group of disciples saying, I mean, he's not there, but we're not exactly sure what happened. Did they take his body? Did somebody steal it? Uh, what, what was really happening? And no doubt in that upper room, just like a normal individual would have done, do you not think that they reminisced about the life of Jesus that impacted their own soul? Do you not think that for 
the three days prior to the resurrection, you had conversation in the room that, that started with something like, hey, hey guys, do you remember? Do you remember when we were about dead? And we were on the water and the storm was going and we were all fearful and all of a sudden Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat and one of us had to go over there and say, Jesus, do you care about us? We're gonna die. Do you remember when Jesus got up from his, his rest and just walked, he stood up and said, peace, be still. And then the other one might have said, oh yeah, but do you remember when the whole crowd of people and they're all wondering what they're going to eat and all of a sudden the five loaves and two fish show up from this small little boy and he starts breaking it up and he starts giving, into, giving it to people and then we had all kinds of basketfuls of food because Jesus said he was the bread of life. No doubt this kind of reminiscing was going on with the hope that Jesus truly and surely was alive. We come to our text in our section today on the two men unto the road to Emmaus. And you see these men having come likely from uh, this company because we see the dialogue. And I really think as, as, as Luke writes this account, this is so important for us to remember who Luke is writing to. Now I understand that sometimes our New Testament books are often broken up in various components, so we've grouped all the four Gospels together. But you do understand, if you don't, this will be good for you to understand, that Luke and Acts were once one book. It was Luke-Acts. He used the Gospel and then right on into the church. Why do you think he did that? He starts, with the resurre- he starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he moves into the resurrection, and then to the impact onto the body of people so that people who wanted to understand the account of the life and ministry of Jesus would directly connect it to the power of the local, tes- the local New Testament church. So that there was a shift from what God had been doing in Israel, and he was making them jealous that God loved a people that were not his people. He had grafted them in. He had sheep that were not of the same fold, but he had had two groups, two, two groups of sheep, and made them under one shepherd into one fold. Only a great God can do something like that. No doubt, so perplexed. Right, Luke writes this account for this main emphasis, and I want to reiterate it to you this morning as we walk through this text, because as we look at this, uh, this literary composition of Luke, you ought to stand back in somewhat a majestic way going, wow, could this man know how to write. He was endowed by the Spirit of God who put suspense into a story. And you know why he did it? So that you, could, you and I and any other individual that reads the Luke-Acts account, they would believe and rejoice. That's the whole point of what we're trying to get at this morning. Our main idea, believe and rejoice. Now let's walk together through the text with these two men as they travel on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to start with this particular uh, report that they had heard in Luke chapter 24, verse number 13. Here's what it says. Luke records, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and then looking sad, 
Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. He said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now Luke writes this incredible composition, but understand that those who were reading this account, can you, not, you, can, you can almost sense that Luke is going to know that those who were reading this account were going to realize that these two men had an encounter with Jesus, but they didn't know it. So you're reading, have you ever had one of those moments where, uh, those embarrassing moments where someone that you knew, you were talking about some subject that you thought you knew a whole lot about, but someone who was far superseded your knowledge and perhaps even had a greater awareness of whatever it was, could have been a president of a company or, or a leader in that particular field, and you're going waxing eloquent about what is going on, and, and someone is like, oh no. Like, they're right behind you. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. They're right there. That's what Luke intends for the reader to go, to start to begin to fathom in their own mind. They don't know it's Jesus. It's him and they don't even see it. They begin to start asking textual questions and observational things like, when are they going to find out? How is he going to tell them? Are they, are they going to be made aware? This is the living Christ. Luke intends for his readers to gain a, a sense of suspense so that all of a sudden we become engaged with these two men and you can notice something about the report. They begin to be an individuals and even Jesus could understand the nonverbal communication of two men. You ever watch somebody who walked but they were sad? They were talking but they were sad. Like you don't go jogging, running, leaping for joy when you're sad, do you? You watch somebody and they're dejected, they're moving slow, they're talking with a, a sense of gravity. Like, I just cannot believe this is happening. Jesus all of a sudden comes across these two men and he begins to have a conversation with them knowing that they were, they were sad. Now he gives us this textual clue. There was a superintended reality for these two men at this moment Jesus, or God the Father in heaven, it says, uh, and it is in the passive in the, in the Greek text, that's, that God kept them from seeing who Jesus was. If you read a bunch of commentaries, there's something that you're going to find some people will wrestle with this reality. Was, was it God doing the blinding, or was it a spiritual blindness that actually occurred? They were so dejected and so discouraged that no matter what they were doing, they just couldn't see it. I think the text gives us the textual clue and subject that God superintended, in this case, to not reveal himself at the moment. I think Jesus had a plan for this because he knew he wanted to talk to these men about how the scriptures revealed him to them. No doubt they, these individuals had heard about Jesus, but in the midst of their sadness, and, and you even notice this in verse 17, and they, and they stood still and they looked sad. You know, I can only imagine from Jesus' vantage point. I mean, he does not want people to live a life where all of a sudden their grief-stricken circumstance, whatever had caused it, and in this case it was, it was his own death, to have to have individuals live that way where there is no hope. And you know, a dejected spirit and a discouraged soul often reveals one thing, 
I'm struggling with hope. And they often, they're often thinking to themselves here, no doubt, because they were looking sad. Is there any hope anymore? All these long centuries, the Old Testament had foreseen this reality of the Messiah. Can you remember, it wasn't only but uh, just a short time ago, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey and everybody was hailing him as king. And all the Jewish people thought, this, this is going to happen. The kingdom's happening now. The disciples thought, I'm going to be sitting on a throne and, and I'm going to sit by Jesus and it's all going to take place right here before my eyes. And then he dies, he's crucified, and he's put in the tomb. Oh, you talk about some level of anticlimactic situation for the disciples. Like, yes, no. Like, we're so excited. No, what happened? We know those moments. You expect everything, and all of a sudden you think nothing happened. But Jesus is there with these two men. And notice this. I just love this about Jesus. He goes to the men, and he doesn't just kind of walk by, and they see him and like, oh, there he is. He is alive. He engages them. He engages them, and I think this is part of the purpose behind the, the, the covering and not revealing himself to them immediately. He comes to them. He's inquisitive. This is what, what God does because he cares for people. He wants them to have hope. He wants it to be revived. And he comes alongside them. And he says, tell me about this. I'll tell you some of the most amazing things that a Christian can do, can come alongside another individual and say, tell me where you lack hope. And listen, so that you can begin to understand how you can care for them. And in this case, Jesus come by, comes by these two men on the road to Emmaus in their downtrodden heart. And he says, tell us this. I mean, and these men's response is, is, is somewhat comical. Because we realize that Luke is placing this like, are you the only one? I mean, seriously? Like, I think that's kind of the tone. Like, are you the only one who, who didn't know what happened in Jerusalem? There were so many people. There were so many witnesses, so many miracles. And you didn't, you didn't know any of this? And Jesus just simply says, what things? Because he wants to continue to draw out where the sense of hopelessness lies. And they say of the report, and they said, concerning this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Think about all the things that Jesus had done preceding the triumphal entry. All the miracles that had taken place in the last three years, three and a half years of his life. He had come in. He had ruled the temple on Monday and Tuesday. He was doing all kinds of miracles. There was, nowhere, there was no one there for the Passover that year that would not have understood or said, this Jesus is different. A man mighty in the word. Now just, just grab a hold of these two, these two concepts. Because they're certainly not accidental in the text. A man who is mighty in word and deed. All throughout the Old Testament. Starting from Moses to the prophets. Why do you think uh, various miracles happened? They were there, and Jesus did miracles, and, the, and at various times, Moses had various things that he had done. Why did he do it? Because every time the miracles were done, it would validate the message of the messenger, that it was not from himself, it was from the living God himself. Do you remember when Moses went through this at the burning bush, and he kind of said, I don't know if I can even talk, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and God says to him, when you get there, he said, I want you to throw down your staff, and it's going to turn into a snake. 
And then you're going to pick it up, and then you're going to put your hand inside your cloak, and you're going to come out, and it's leprous, and you're going to put it back, and then it's going to not be leprous. Why are all these miraculous things happening? Because just like when Moses came and did those things before the people, it was to stamp approval that the message that they spoke was a true message. And it was stamped approval by the miraculous nature of his deeds. Do you know what Jesus often would say to the people and to the Pharisees? If you don't believe, believe me, then believe the works that validate me. When Jesus was a man mighty indeed to all the people who came to the Passover that, that year, people were saying, this man is a man full of miraculous deeds that no one else can explain except that they come from God, which stamps approval on the message that he is actually the son of God. Here these men are grappling with this reality, talking to Jesus, and you know, you kind of think like Jesus, maybe he's like, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I really know. And they crucified him, <laughs> I really know. And they're grappling with this component and, and they begin, Jesus begins to hear the report and then we see the reaction in verse 21. Notice this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Just stop there for a moment. I mean, all earth history up to this point, all the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, that the, that the serpent's head would be crushed, all of these things that they had awaited for, from the moment that Jesus' birth narrative comes on the scene and you get Zechariah and, uh, and Anna in the temple and it says these short little phrases, they were all waiting for the consummation of Israel and they were waiting and hoping and then the triumphal entry comes and they're all putting down their leaves and they're all putting down the palm branches. They're hailing him, blessed, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now he says, we had hoped. He was the one who would redeem Israel. I mean, get the feel for this. We, we thought it was going to be the case, but I don't know. I guess maybe not. And there Jesus was as a, as, a, as a testimony to the reality of this very truth. We had hoped that he would redeem. Now, here was the problem is they wanted their redemption to look like something. They wanted it to be freed from Rome. They wanted it to be some political entity, some king, some ruler riding in, wiping off Rome, as they had heard in, in, their, in their past history. But Jesus came to die, to suffer, but I'll tell you what, he did redeem. These men on the road to Emmaus said that I, we had hoped that he had redeemed. Can I just tell you this? We are cued in by the author, by Luke, to get us to think, wait a minute, but he did redeem them. Israel is not lost. We are not lost. Israel is redeemed. But it wasn't the redemption they anticipated. That was still coming. Oh, I love something about the gospel and the works of Genesis through Revelation. And it's, it's the crescendoing that happens in the sense of earth history that it's not even over. It's not even just, it's not over at the cross. It just keeps climaxing. It keeps getting better and better and better and better. Do you realize, Christian, coming to Christ is just the beginning. And Jesus knew it. And as he spoke with these men, he, they said we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, and he did. He did it in all ways, but the redemption was a redemption from sin, and, if, and, and later on he would come to rule. He continues on. 
He says, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things has happened. Realize, they had been listening to Jesus. <laughs> it's not that they were off, nodding off while Jesus was having a sermon or pulling people aside all of a sudden saying, Jesus made it very plain to them, I will die and I will rise again on the third day. Now just notice the framework that they were working from. I mean, here they're walking on the road to Emmaus, some seven miles outside Jerusalem. And by the way, Emmaus, although we can't find an exact, an exact city named Emmaus, it is very interesting that Luke, in all of his accounts, records place names to understand its own historicity. He was marking events at certain places, and of course, place names have changed various times through the years. But Luke was making a very specific point to say the re resurrection of Jesus Christ happened in a point in earth history that would redeem all of humanity, and he is alive. He continues, and, and they begin to talk with him about this, and, and they said, since all these things happened, it's now the third day. And they had heard the account of the two women. They, they heard the account of Peter coming back from the tomb. And here was the one thing that they had yet to see. His body was gone, but no one has visibly seen his presence. And it perplexed them. In fact, even in the previous text, when they, when they went through this and the, and the ladies went through it, they said they thought it was but an idle tale. Like, what could be going on? And these men that were now on this road to Emmaus were so hoping that Jesus would rise from the dead, and he had and yet they didn't realize it just yet. As we move on and we see their reaction, but do you notice this? This personal dejection, this personal disappointment. The fact that it was really hard to function that day when they were walking on the road because of their own sadness. They were perplexed, they couldn't understand what... What, what, what happens, but I can tell you this, hopelessness often looks like sadness. Hopelessness often brings a, 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 a perspective of discouragement. You know what? That happens no matter what it is, you, what you think you set your hope in. We know a lot of different people in the world who set their hope on things other than Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden when their thing that they hoped for and longed for didn't occur, all of a sudden their hopes are dashed and their life is a life of discouragement. I watch it in, I've watched it in marriages, I've watched it in friendships, I've watched it in families. Oh, I thought my kids were gonna be so obedient. Surprise. They're sinners and Jesus came to save them too. And by God's grace, I mean, that's all of us. I've watched marriages go, you know what, I just, I thought I would be happy. I'll tell you, Jesus came, and we see people who are filled with hopelessness and discouragement. How dare we just all of a sudden just walk by and say, hey, pray for you. Like, and that's all that we would do. Model what Jesus did with people in discouragement like these two men on the road to Emmaus, and he comes and he walks by their side. He asks them the questions. He, he says, tell me where your hopelessness is. Tell me why you are sad, and then I'm going to give you the truth, and it's going to revive your soul. Only the truth of God's word given by people who want to proclaim that word can bring the hope that God's word was intended to bring. It's not you, it's the word. But if we dare just to 
Walk alongside people who are hurting. I'll tell you what you will find is you will find wherever someone's hope lies. In this case, they wanted Jesus to be king. We should, they should have been discouraged if it was not true, but it was true. Jesus had come to redeem Israel. They had this personal perspective. He was a prophet that was mighty indeed, and yet the problem was no one had visibly seen him. Now, right at this particular point, there comes a turn in verse number 26, and, and we get the report. We've seen their reaction. They're talking with Jesus. Jesus comes, and now we get the, somewhat of a rebuke from Jesus in verse number 26. As we get through it, now he says these things to them. And we had said, and he, and he said this to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, it's, it's kind of easy for us as a 21st century believer having read the scriptures, right? Because we get this vantage point like, we know the full story. But these guys were finding it out in real time as it happened. And Luke intended for you and I to grapple with this, with this reality that we're, they were like, foolish ones? I'm like, we were, we're disciples. I mean, how many of you have a hard time still living out your faith? <laughs> Isn't that like a picture of us? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the things that God has, has told you. I would often say as a parent to my children, but I want you to experience the goodness of God. But these, if you do these things, you will not experience them. And I want you to experience them so badly. We want these things and all of a sudden, uh, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart because that's where belief starts. That's where faith is it's in the heart of humanity. It's in the heart of an individual has to come to grips that by their faith they will be saved. And it wasn't just that. Now notice this. They were slow of heart to believe what? Not just to believe what some random individual that they didn't seem to recognize happened to be saying to them on that day when they walked on the road to Emmaus. There was a concrete, fixed revelation that Jesus said, oh, slow of heart to believe can I just use the word, the scriptures? The Old Testament and the law and the prophets and the Psalms that spoke of Jesus. Our faith is not just anchored in a real history, in real time, but it's with real revelation, real authority that has been given to us so that we could know Jesus by the way that we, we understand him from God himself who had inspired these men to write about who this person was. Luke understood that because he started the, the, Luke, uh, the whole Luke-Acts books by saying, I write this to you, O Theophilus, so that as you look at all the accounts that have been given, that I have sought out to collect all these things so that you could have assurance that this Jesus is the man who he said he was. That he died, he was crucified for your sin, and that now you can be made alive. He anchored it in real revelation and real scripture Shame on us, Christians, if all of a sudden we don't take time to read the Bible and then expect that all of a sudden some vibrant, enthusiastic relationship with God will exist apart from his revelation. See, people often so quickly read the Bible to say, God tells me, oh, here's what I can't do. Especially even as new believers who come to Christ, like, if I do this, then all the fun's taken away. That's what all your people say. Now, you as believers, many of you know the enjoyment is just begun. 
But they don't realize that. And in reality, real revelation in real time says this is very, this is true. And Jesus' resurrection stamps the approval on all the inspired scripture that was given. And Luke wanted to unfold this before every reader that would get the Luke-Acts account in the New Testament church. So their assurance would be strong and would say he is alive. Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to show you. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Oh, this word, this glory, this so incredible word where you, your mind starts to go to the transfiguration. The glory that was Jesus's that was one time when he sat by the Father's hand. It is now there again when he returned to his glory. And he said, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can I tell you this? If you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I don't know if I believe in all this stuff. I don't know if this is, this is a whole bunch of men who wrote the Bible, and I don't know if I can trust them. I know a whole bunch of, uh, of, of earthly men, and I'll tell you what, Jesus' resurrection and the account of the Gospels over and over again through eyewitnesses stamped the approval on the message of the messenger. It was validated not only through his miracles, it was validated through his resurrection. And get this, you remember in the Old Testament all the time when he said, by two or three witnesses, by two or three witnesses, do you notice every, it seems almost like every account of the resurrection, you've got a couple of ladies, then you've got Peter and John. Why do they do that? Because by the mouth of two to three witnesses, let everything be heard and that everything be true. You think there isn't a reason why all these things happen and by there's two men that Luke chooses out of all the accounts he could write about, there's two men on the road to Emmaus. Because we could say about one guy, ah, he was tired. Like, he was not seeing right. I don't know if he saw the risen Lord. But then they talk to the second guy, no, 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 Cleopas is right. He's, he's in his right mind. And by the sense of two or three witnesses, all would be heard and established as authority and truth. And beginning with, all the Mo with, with Moses and all the prophets, remind yourself for a moment of Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise, you, raise up for you a prophet like me from, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Oh, could you imagine the stunning reality that these men began to realize? Wow, this guy's bringing us to the truth. There is no greater authority and hope and help that you can bring people to. It is not your own human ingenuity. It's not your words of wisdom. It is not your sense of ability to control people's grief. Where their hope will be found is when you take them to the scriptures and help them realize the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. And then he takes them to 2 Samuel, perhaps of the Davidic covenant in, in chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. And they heard in, the, in, in Jesus teaching to them this passage when, it's, when it says of the Davidic covenant to, about David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Jesus was saying, 
I am the one, the son of David, the savior of the world. And perhaps he moved to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Can you imagine him just stopping on him and just focusing and saying, it's on the Messiah you waited for. And this is ringing in their ears. On him he took the iniquity of us all. And he moves to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 23, perhaps in verses 5 to 6, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. I don't know about you believers. Aren't you waiting for a day when you actually see a king and a ruler who actually rules in a righteous way, filled with actual justice, an actual truth. Every day, every time I watch the news, I feel like I, I long for this person. And he unfolded the Old Testament scriptures. Why would he do that? Because all the Old Testament was filled with often a bunch of dejected Israelite people who had been exiled as a result of their sin. And they would constantly bring back the message of the prophets that said, he's not done with us yet. And Jesus says, You've got to believe the scriptures. He moves on from the rebuke to go, and, and now we get to the point where we where think, are they going to realize it? And here it is in verse number, uh, in this last section, in, verse, uh, in the following verses. In verse 28, it says, So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as, he, as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and he returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. If everything else, now they run. I, that was probably the fastest seven miles that they had ever ran in their entire life. They had energy beyond something that was, was not human. They were infused with an understanding and they could not wait. Did you catch this? They could not wait to tell everyone else about the resurrection. About the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that we were going to now have because Jesus was truly alive. They saw it with their own eyes. Oh, Christian brothers and sisters, are we that eager to tell people about the resurrection and the truth of Jesus Christ? I'm afraid, I'm afraid that often in the midst of our busy lives, filled with all kinds of things. That we get sidetracked and, and having a level of awareness that our life is not our own. That we have been bought with a price. That Jesus Christ has freed us from our sin and that we could then find hope in him. Oh, this recognition caused something to happen. Uh, oh man, Wouldn't, don't you want to be two of those guys being taught from Jesus in the Old Testament? And like, I'll walk to Emmaus. Just Talk to me about what this Old Testament says. They got a first-hand lesson from the Old Testament that no doubt indelibly marked their life from that point forward. 
But notice, the scriptures bring life. Jesus brought life through his resurrection, and the account of the scriptures continue to bring that life that is now offered to all people from their sin. Oh, and I love what they said. I can only imagine he appears to them. Now, just notice the setting. They welcome him in. He's almost like he wants to go further, but they're, they've been taught by Jesus. They're like, oh, I, mean, I don't know what you do if you really want to talk to somebody. You're just like, it's over a meal, right? It's like, just come, stay with us. I mean, could you just give us a little bit more? I mean, I've been under some teaching, like I didn't want the hour to end. Have you ever had that? Probably not like what's going on right now. But you're like, just don't stop. Keep telling me more. I, I can only imagine that that's what, what Cleopas and his friend were experiencing. They sit down at the table, and all of a sudden, the account records that Luke, and no doubt, these are firsthand accounts. So he sits down, Luke sits down with Cleopas and this individual who were well-known to the group, and they knew they weren't lying, and they were saying, this is what happened. He takes the bread. Oh, is he not drawing imagery on purpose to the supper where Jesus would bring the new covenant of his blood that was sacrificed for the redemption of all people, not just Israel? As he sat with them, he broke the bread, and... Could you imagine, like, all of a sudden when that let veil, whatever it was that, the, what that God did, all of a sudden took it away. I mean, I, I don't know how you respond at that particular point. Like, you're eating, you're eating, like, what? It's Christ! I, I don't even know, you'd kind of be dumbfounded. You wouldn't really know what to say. He sees them, they recognize that it was him who he was talking about. He already validated them from the scriptures. He is now validating it by his own person, standing in their presence. And he was giving them, and they were enjoying fellowship together. And all of a sudden, he vanishes. I think the, the account of the story that this, uh, it, it's possible that the vanishing of this uh, at this point happens because Jesus set out to do to help their hope to be revived that he was alive. It was accomplished, and immediately he disappears from them, going, I did what I came to do in this situation. I've got a few other situations where people are struggling with disbelief. I mean, if you're here and, you're, and, and you struggle with doubt, I'll tell you what, you have this most amazing, merciful, gracious Savior who doesn't come in ridicule like, duh, how can you not believe? See the marks. He's so kind. I mean, you think about Thomas, who wasn't there, and then Jesus reappears to them again, and he, and he singles out Thomas and says, Thomas, see and believe. Come, put your fingers in my nail prints. Put, put your hand in my side. Believe. Oh, man, you think of this, this, this picture of Jesus, this comforting, gracious Savior, who the reaction is of these two men. Oh, our hearts burned within us as he talked to us in the scriptures. Christians, please don't lose the value and the appreciation for the scriptures. Read them with fervency, not to just find another thing that, that you think, oh man, now I can't do that. Read it to know him. Read it for relationship, because he wants to know you. The savior of the world who broke into earth history and time who created all the things that you could ever imagine and you have ever seen, and he broke into our earth history and said, I will save them. And he did. And we celebrate it. 
I love this phrase, their hearts burned within them, because it's almost like this common vernacular, like you, this, this figurative language that says, he lit a fire underneath them. And they went away, I wonder, you know what, I bet they never read those Old Testament scriptures uh, the same again. They went back again and again. I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible, I don't care how many times you've heard the story, I don't care how many times uh, you, you heard the same sermon, guess what, there is something there that God wants to teach you. Don't ever tire from being in the scripture and allow your hearts to burn with excitement and emotion. Don't lose that. Encourage that amongst this body. Ask each other, what are you learning in your devotions? Moms and dads, it's not enough just to say to your children, did you do your devotions today? It's not enough. You say, what are you learning and how are you applying it? What do you appreciate about Jesus that you've never seen before, but that you know he's so different than you? Are you amazed with him? Because it's this Savior that you will one day stand before at the judgment seat of Christ. And he will unfold all the things that you have ever done, thought, and said. And you will give an account for all of those things. Allow yourself to discipline your mind to love the scriptures, to love the body of Christ. It takes us all the way to this. What's your personal response to the resurrection? Does it light a fire underneath the way that you want to go back and just read the account of the Gospels and see Jesus again and again and again? And see the church for God's incredible plan to care for the souls of people until one day he will rapture the church in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. He will come and all of a sudden we will be gone and we will see the glory of the risen king. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and You've, you've come and you've visited uh, us this morning at the chapel. We are so glad that you are here. Can I just say this is not accidental that you are hearing the gospel this morning. This is not by accident. This is by God's design. And can I say to you what Acts 4.12 uh, has said to us as believers, there is no salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you're an unbeliever this morning, do what Jesus allows you to do. And what he said in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Aren't you tired of living for, for yourself? Tired of living for a hope that always promises something but always falls short? Find the hope in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. That's what it takes. It's not just some wishful thinking that you come here this morning and all of a sudden you hope because you attended an Easter service that somehow you're good until next year. I know that's how it happens to go in various places. Whew. Christer. Christmas and Easter. And I'm good. We don't want that for you. Mark a new moment in your life. A new moment where all of a sudden you go, I want to have my heart long to know this Jesus. It's for you. Like it was for so many of us who found ourselves lost in our sin, damned to an eternity in hell. And he saved us. He gave us hope. He revived our spirit. That can be you. You know, if you're here and you think, I have never repented of my sin and placed my faith in Jesus Christ who is now alive. This morning, you can do what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, here's the promise you can live with. You will be saved and it won't be on your own doing. It will be because of his doing. And by your faith and your recognition that you're a sinner, that you've got to go before the Lord and you've got to talk to him and you've got to ask him and you've got to repent of your sin. And guess what? I can tell you this. He will never turn anyone away who genuinely seeks to repent and live for Jesus Christ. He will not turn you away. He will love you for the rest of your life from now into eternity. You will have the hope that you long for. Come to him. Can I just plead with you? Know this Jesus. If you're a believer here, can I just remind you for the sake of appreciation what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, your salvation cannot be secured if Christ is not alive to secure it. All of us who have struggled with assurance of our salvation at one point or another, if Jesus didn't raise, we have no assurance. But because he is raised, you have all the assurance you could ever want. There is no one who can remove you from the Father's hand. If Christ had not been raised, we would still be in our sin. Oh, what a... What a tremendous, incredible thought that somehow I would have to live with this burden. If Christ had not been raised, we have no mediator that when we sin, we go, he goes before the Father on our behalf when we struggle to even know what to say. If Christ had not been saved or not been raised, he wouldn't have gone and sent the comforter to us who now indwells us and seals us and convicts us and challenges us to make our lives to be like his. And if Christ has not been raised, there's no hope for eternal life. The two men on the road to Emmaus had their hope revived. They believed, they saw, they rejoiced. But oh, those words that Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Oh, that's me. That's you. We believe because this is what he tells us. And as a result, Christian, can I just tell you, do what Paul says as we study, and we'll come to this in Philippians. Make your aim, and Paul says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and that I might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Oh, if you're still even struggling with doubt as a believer, Come to the scriptures. Find another individual who will take you to the truth and help you and walk by you as they nurture you into the things of the truth. And slowly and slowly you will come to have your hope revived as you trust in the promises and the plan of God. Oh, believer, I hope you haven't grown cold. That this just isn't the, 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 the attendance of the season for you. That you leave here today just thinking, I just want to be in his word more. I want to know him. I want to help people more. I want to be I mean, more gracious than I've ever been before. I want to love people in a way that there's no possible human way to love except for it was that I have the love of Christ that I now want to give to other people. Be committed to him. Appreciate him. Trust him. Do what Jesus often asked his followers in Matthew chapter 20 and Matthew 16. He said, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For, have, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Believers, we are so excited about the resurrection. But remember, this resurrected Savior is coming to rule and reign. He's going to come in the clouds at the end of the tribulation. He's going to break through the clouds riding on a white horse with a sash that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will save those at that point. And we will have already been there to witness it all because as two or three witnesses will say, wow, look at this sight. Jesus has saved everything and he will now set up the kingdom. And we will watch a righteous ruler of the, of the line of David rule and reign just as he promised that's only possible because Jesus is truly alive. And I hope as you come in contact with the scriptures this morning that you just, it just challenges you to love him more, to be with God's people who love him more, to exercise the faith that God intends you to have so that when you stand before him one day at the judgment seat of Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can have the hope that your life is worth living now because Jesus is truly alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, this account of Luke and, the, and these two men on the road to Emmaus, oh, what a wonderful account. Oh, the majestic reality that they came to when, they, when, their, when the veil was lifted from their eyes, and it was him. Lord, we long for that day where we can see you face to face. We want you to come to fix what is broken, the sin that has just ravaged the world that we live in. Brokenness of homes, brokenness of families, brokenness in friendships. Oh, we long for you to come and make it right. And we know that your promises are true because your resurrection stamps the approval of the reality that all you have said, all you have promised, you will, you will bring to to pass because you are truly alive. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.